This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we speak with an executive from X-Wing about autonomous aircraft. In the news, Airbus and Qatar Airways settled their dispute over A350 paint problems. A personal eVTOL gets closer to certification, maybe. A report from 2019 explains how Boeing lost its way. A close call with a 737 taking off and a 767 landing on the same runway. The F-22 Raptor gets its first kill. And a Boeing 737 has crashed, fighting fires, in Australia. All that and more, coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 736 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight. With me is Rob Mark. He's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI, and Rob had a lengthy career at the FAA as an air traffic controller and supervisor, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Good evening, um, and uh, thank you for inviting me back, uh, Max. And I think it's interesting. We have a couple of FAA alums here tonight uh, we do. Uh, with our guest, uh, Earl Lawrence. So, um, Earl, did you... Uh, did you take your uh, retirement out of the pension fund or did you just leave it there? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a good question. You know how that, that goes. Yeah. I think I've left it there for a little while anyways. David Vanderhoof is off this week and we understand Max Trescott will be joining us hopefully um, sometime shortly. But we're going to go ahead and launch. And as Rob mentioned, our guest this episode is Earl Lawrence. He's the chief compliance and quality officer at X-Wing. Now, X-Wing is building an air transportation system of autonomous aircraft, starting with the express regional air cargo market. And the team includes expert engineers, designers, researchers, and strategists working towards the introduction of self-flying planes into the airspace. X-Wing has demonstrated an autonomous gate-to-gate flight with a cargo aircraft. The plane was able to taxi, take off, land, and returned to the gate entirely on its own. And from that, the company was recognized for Time's Best Inventions in 2021 and Fast Company's World Changing Ideas in 2022. Earl is a commercial pilot, multi-engine, FAA airframe and power plant mechanic, has inspection authorization. And before joining X-Wing, he was in the FAA, most recently as executive director of aircraft certification, but he was also director of UAS integration office, and Earl was manager of small airplane directorate. And before that, Earl was with the EAA as the vice president for industry and regulatory affairs. And Earl, if you go back way, way, way back, you were at Rocketdyne. I think that's uh, uh, pretty exciting, but that was quite a while ago. I know uh, before I retired Actually, quite a bit before I retired, I um, had some dealings with Rocketdyne and uh, was able to go see the the facility and uh, all of the uh, fantastic rocket motors that were uh, stationed around on the campus. It was quite a trip. 
Yeah, it was an exciting place to work, and it's really pretty amazing. And and you know you're getting old when the facility isn't even there anymore, and you start to see everything that you worked on in museums th- uh, throughout the world. And uh, uh, but but it was it was very exciting to work on space station and uh, the and the space shuttle. Um, and it was a privilege to be associated with those projects. Well, it sounds like an exciting life, and. Talking about exciting, uh, and we said this over and over again, I think, uh, Rob, that uh, uh, these days we see a lot of interest in new types of aircraft powered by new technology. We're seeing lots of electric aircraft, including eVTOLs and otherwise, and these are being developed by many companies. Uh, We're seeing aircraft that are optionally piloted or remotely piloted or pilotless, often these aircraft, these new aircraft, are being viewed for regional air transportation, including cargo delivery. So, Earl, are we seeing a technology push or a technology pull? Is regional air transportation and cargo delivery changing and the new tech can fill the gap? Or is the new tech creating opportunities for regional air transportation that we didn't have before? I think actually both, right? As a lot of these technologies are. It's not exclusively one or the other. Um, but I do like to remind folks, I mean, especially this is an aviation, you know, audience and people know about this is autopilot started way back in World War One. <laughs> okay. So we've been automating things. And, you know, we went from, uh, you know, in the airlines days, we went from four pilots to three pilots or four main crew members, right? You know, and then three and then two and then commercial aviation, at least business aviation has gone to single pilot and all that was automation. And that's all we're really talking about um, is that automation. But another unique thing for cargo in particular and, and what we're looking at is, is really not completely removing the pilot. The pilot's still around, but the advantages of not having to have the pilot sit in a hotel room for 10 hours a day. And I think the pilots like that too, because people not realize a typical cargo operation fly out at, you know, 4.30, 5.30 in the morning for 45 minutes and then stay in a hotel for 10 to 12 and then get back in the airplane and fly 45 minutes back. Wouldn't you rather be able to, you know, maybe go to a single location, sit at a nice council, and um, maybe get four or five flights in that day? Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit more flight time for your certificate. And then also, the airplane's not just sitting in one location. You can you can move the aircraft around, and it can do other missions. So that will re reimagine how we do cargo and how we move things around. Um, in combined with all these other technologies that are that are coming along, but I, I look at it as evolution, not revolution. You know, it's uh, we're increasing safety, we're taking the next step. Um, and you know, I hate to admit it, as a multi-engine pilot myself, I'm I don't fly. You know, I don't fly with an autopilot. But um, you know, the nice new Garmin autopilot that will shut off the correct engine and an engine failure, not the wrong one, and <laughs> trim me in and all that other kind of stuff probably does that a little bit better than I do at this uh, point in my life. So, you know, automation isn't necessarily bad. It's just the it's just the next uh, evolution in the in the system. So I'm curious. Oh, go ahead, Max. I'm sorry. And I see that Max Trescott has, in fact, joined us. So I just want to say hello to Max. And Great to be here. Hello, Earl. Haven't seen you in a long, long time. We met back at EAA back in like 2008, I think. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, we've crossed paths a few times along <laughs> along it. And it's a, aviation is a small community, isn't true, it? True, very true. Rob, you were going to say something? I was going to say as long as you don't mention that we knew each other in the last century. I mean, that <laughs> makes it really sound old. But, you know, actually, X-Wing, are they planning on a... Uh, an autonomous airplane or a remotely piloted airplane or a combination of both as it evolves? Sure. We're, we're you know, we're using autonomous technologies, but of course, um, we, one of the things that is, we are not automating and that is ATC communication and work. So, you know, certainly that's certain, that's something that others have worked on and, and some are developing things for, um, that's not part of our initial plan. Our initial plan is still retaining uh, uh, our pilots that we have, and they're still handling ATC communication and and providing um, guidance to the aircraft. But we are not taking a cockpit and moving it to the ground like the military uh, drones and things like that have done. We we really are automating the system. As I said, uh, you know, the systems we're developing. Think of your POH. Um, and all those emergency and normal procedures in the air, yes, um, the system will take care of those. And so, as some call it our super pilot <laughs> um, instead of autopilot, right? Um, because it has those additional functions to manage um, all those checklists and all the, those activities um, in emergencies and, and just in normal approaches as well. Hmm. I noticed that uh, there's uh, that X-Wing had done some uh, manned delivery flights to the Navajo Nation Reservation and some vaccines as well. That may have preceded you coming to the company. I'm not sure. But are are you familiar with that? And uh, does that inform what the company is doing now? Sure. um, I'm not familiar with that particular mission. That was before I did join the company. But um, one of the things that wasn't mentioned is we are actually a, a real Part 135 air carrier. Um, we are a UPS feeder. We have a pretty good sized fleet. We're hiring pilots, by the way, martinair.com. If you have anybody's looking for a pilot job, um, and it's, uh, willing to fly the, in the morning and the evenings, like I described. Um, but we really, and I'm, that's not a joke. We, we really, one of the tough things we have is getting pilots and aircraft, quite frankly. Um, there's a shortage of both. When I say aircraft, yes, you can go buy a brand new one and wait the, you know, the time to get it, but, this is the cargo market, and um, anybody who's been in aviation knows the cargo market gets the secondary aircraft, right? Um, you know, we don't get them when they're nice, new, and shiny, and, you know, for the appropriate reason, and um, we're moving them around the countries. But uh, we're operating across the United States and uh, regular air carrier service, and that is critical to doing this. And I want to highlight that. I, I think uh, sitting at FAA, I saw a lot of people trying and not realizing you can't just get, you know, put a black box on top of an in, in an airplane and say, I got this autonomous thing. No, no, no. It, it, it's about how you operate the aircraft. It's about having, all, you know, an SMS program and an air carrier certificate with a 145, you know, repair station that you're maintaining your aircraft, that you have all the checklists and the procedures and everything. We are not bypassing those. Um, in fact, it's one of the reasons why I was really happy to come to X-Wing is, is rule number one, we are following the existing regulations. So this isn't about getting an exemption from a bunch of things. It's about being in the existing system and operating in the existing system with the 
you know, key exception that I don't have human eyes uh, looking out the window um, when when those uh, aircraft are flying from from point A to point B in that final mission. Earl, the reason I'm late is I just came back from the uh, Concord Airport. I had someone who had a check ride, and I'm sitting right outside the hangar where I have seen an X-wing uh, caravan uh, in the past, and I've seen it uh, taxiing around there. Uh, tell us what kinds of things it's achieved, and also are there any other research uh, aircraft that are out uh, flying about uh, like that aircraft? So one of the things that, for people not familiar with the X-Wing aircraft, we're taking Cessna Caravan, typical cargo aircraft uh, that are out there, and we've automated taxi. Um, And I think that's really important. Look at the news that we've seen more recently with some of the taxi uh, issues. And I, you know, I don't bring that up. The automation, one of the things that's really neat about it is, for example, it'll stop at every hold line. And it won't cross a runway until it gets the double verification from somebody. Yes, you can program it in. You know how you get cleared to taxi the runway and they give and you read back the clearance on the taxiways and all that. And then you, you repeat all of it and they say yes. And then I don't know about you, but, you know, when you're taxing and you've had a lot of instructions, um, do you ever second guess yourself, right, as you're going there and you ask for, you know, you call back up the ground. Can you validate? Am I cleared across this or I'm not cleared across this? Um, you know, these checks are are in the, the programming as it, it automatically does that. It uses uh, GPS and uh, vision systems to uh, taxi the aircraft to to the runway. You get your clearance. And um, again, you don't have to tow it out to the runway. It doesn't have to sit on the runway for special approvals or anything. Um, if uh, the tower says just keep it rolling and go, um, it'll do that. If it says you know hold on, you know line up and wait, it will line up and wait. Um, it'll perform those functions. Takes off, follows its uh, IFR flight approved IFR flight plan. Um, can take vectors looks out for traffic, um, both cooperative and non-cooperative, right? And so what I mean by that is those that have transponders, we see all of you. That's real easy. It's not so easy to see somebody in the ultralight out there um, that may be, well, high because we're we're not a drone. We're not operating, you know, low. We're we're up in in uh in ATC world here and in on a cleared flight path and on IFR flight plan. So um, we're up there, and but we still have to have those radar technology to detect them and uh, make sure um, we have that extra protection in addition to working with ATC as we're, we're heading to our destination. And then it will uh, do an autoland, um, and it'll shoot that approach. Some of the fun things we've gotten to do is because we're following all the regulations, what do you have to do when you get to decision height? You have to identify the airport environment. Yes, we have built a uh, vision system to identify the airport environment. Um, and as you might expect, you have to meet the uh, FAA reliability requirements for system safety. And so these are much higher levels of safety than, than you would might think. So you can't just do that, for example, on a GPS system, which we've seen like on the Garmin Autoland. That's for an emergency. That's great. But that isn't sufficient for day-to-day operations, right? So we have to combine multiple technologies and backups and take advantage of ILSs and VORs and inertial navigation systems and GPS and vision, all of them, to uh, make sure that 
were lined up truly on the center line and, uh, you know, use radar altimeters, ones that are, can comply with all the 5G restrictions, um, you know, just, but again, th these are technical challenges, but ones that we're using the existing system that's been in place, um, just building the reliability and, and redundancies that are required when you get Part 23 and Part 25 certification um, to make sure that uh, it can be conducted safely. Earl, I'm curious about the, the motivation for X-Wing to do this. I can I can think of a couple of things. One may, may be that uh, X-Wing is developing this uh, this capability because the company thinks that's what they need and they're making it for themselves. And or X-Wing might be doing this to as a as a business to sell it to others. Uh, which of those is is the accurate description? Well, you know, one we see the need. Right. Um, just to start off with, we, you know, just as, as as I mentioned, we're a cargo carrier and we see the need just among our operation and, and how it can improve efficiencies and safety within our own operation. But when you look at all the new technologies that are coming out, when you hear about EV tolls, you know, and they talk about urban air mobility flying around within the city and we're going to move a lot of people or regional air mobility, which I, I really do think. That's kind of the next thing, but that we've been on the edge of that in GA for a long time when it's regional mobility. That's taking advantage of the 5,000-plus airports that already exist that, quite frankly, are underutilized, right? And and getting some regular transportation going, that's not, you know, the big bus, right? It's something that, you know, is more on the taxi level, the air taxi level that's um, within a reasonable price range. And, and I really believe that, in order to do that, regardless of, you know, whether you're hydrogen powered, electrical powered or whatever your new thing that you're bringing forward without this autonomy, um, without this additional technology, um, it won't be affordable. Right. Um, we won't be able to bring the price down, even with the numbers. At the very least, we need to add autonomy to make flying simpler. Right. To make it more accessible to, to more people. And, you know, I, and so this autonomy is something that's going to support that revolution of allowing more people to fly themselves, allowing um, more operations. And, you know, how many of us are ready to go up and, and fly IFR and, you know, and, and do these tight approaches and things like that? And, you know, having this technology to, to help us with that is, is a great thing. It's sort of, it's like having that GPS, right? I mean, I'm, I still know how to read a map, but how many of us uh, ever take a map out and read it now? We, we follow those GPS instructions and, uh, you know, when we're driving around trying to find an address and, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, not I know this is a podcast, but for those who can't see, I'm looking around here. Let's just say we all have gray hair and we all remember things like even in odd sides of the street, looking for addresses and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, this is the new revolution. We don't have to look for even and odd. The computer knows about it. The computer knows where the runway is. It knows where we're lined up. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, these kind of things I, I think will, will help us. We don't have, we don't time out with a uh, computer. Um, it doesn't get tired, doesn't have to sleep. <laughs> um, and then we can put people in where we need them to, to, to assure safety, right? And we, people won't be removed. We're always going to need people to uh, assure safety and um, make sure things work when, um, when the technology doesn't. How did X-Wing attract the talent 
to venture off in this direction. I, I was it all internal. I I find that kind of uh, hard to believe. But. Well, you know, it was. It, it, you know, I look at at my coworkers at X Wing, and it, it's an amazing group. Um, an amazing set of, uh, of experience, um, NASA folks uh, that have worked on regional air mobility and some of these technologies, you know, our CTO with, a, a, a you know, an MIT PhD, you know, I mean, and that, that but that's worked at Collins and Talus and all these known folks doing this automation technology and working for them. Um, you know, so it was just something that we were all pulled together. And as I said, for me, and I think for a lot of others, it's that we're actually an air carrier that we know what it means to to move things on a daily basis and you have to and understand safety, that we're actually following all the regulations. And this is just one of those things where we say, you know, we've been looking at everybody going, let us show you how to do this because we know how to do this and introduce it into the aviation system the way um, it should be done. And, um, you know, and then we can open it up and make it available to all the other uh, new entrants that are trying to get in here. Um, you know, we, we can we can give a good view of what that path is. Have you encountered any particularly strong roadblocks or difficulties so far? Oh, yeah, there's always roadblocks. Um, this is certification. This is aviation. If it was easy, uh, you know, I don't know if everybody do it would be such a great thing. Um, it's, it is a very difficult thing to do. So, you know, it, but is there, is it doable? Yes. Um, and why is it difficult? Certification is always a difficult thing. In the sense of, you know, I, I said it when I was with the FAA, too, is, you know, they're representing the public, right? It's it's the U.S., okay? And it's their job to make sure we have to show to them that we are responsible and can meet a reasonable level of, of safety. Unlike any other in industry, in a sense, I know they don't like hearing this, but they're endorsing our business, they're, they're putting a stamp. There's a U.S. government stamp. It's called an STC or a TC or whatever it may be. And it says, we know what we're doing, at least at the time that they they reviewed everything, right? <laughs> and and um, we're going to let you go do this. And, and how many other businesses get a U.S. government endorsement like that? Um, it's hard to get. And, um, you know, it, it's a lot of work, but it's worth it. Well, take take me through the process you mentioned before that you're you're looking for pilots, and uh, since we're talking about someday completely autonomous, but we're going to have pilots, and we're going to be sort of in between uh, a, a young pilot who uh, perhaps uh, could meet uh, one thirty five standards today says, "Gee, you know, I I might be interested." How would they? see themselves fitting into this? Are they going to be on the ground, as you said, uh, behind a computer screen, flying the, or sure. just monitoring the, uh, the the aircraft? Or how would that all work? It's going to be an evolution, right? Um, and, and when I say that, exactly how it's going to work, well, we're, we don't have the unmanned part certified, right? So it's not going, but if you were to join us now, you'd be flying on the line, gaining that experience, and one of the things that we're doing is we're taking those qualified pilots and, and yeah, now they'll sit at the count console, right? But what are the, what are they doing? They're still doing that decision making, the go, no go decision, the review of the weather, 
um, understanding the circumstances. We have to avoid ice at first, right? You know, so, so you know, kind of making those decisions and having that experience. And I would much rather want a, like a pilot who had been flying that route before that understands that terrain and that thing. So I, I actually, you know, at the beginning, I, I say kind of ironically, like we won't have known icing certification at the very beginning. So um, I think this is backwards because we won't have known icing certification because some of the equipment that we're adding, the pilot's actually going to have to get on board the aircraft and fly it when it's icing <laughs> and, and, and do that route. Um, you know, I can't wait till we switch that, but that's a major certification effort in it itself. So, you know, we'll be going in pieces and, and gaining that ex, that experience. But also think of this, they'll be able to build their flight time faster than they, they were before because let's face it, cargo is a pass-through. We get them at 1,200 hours and we all know what happens at 1,500 hours in this day and age, okay? So I only get them for 300 hours. Um, we want to attract people to say, well, you know what? If you fly for us, you get to be home every night or every day, right? Um, you, you get to be in the same location, you've got known scheduling, and you still have that advantage of, of building flight time and, and doing these operations. Um, you're still involved in, in aviation. And, and here's something else maybe we haven't all thought about. Oh, there's a lot of, of pilots out there um, who may not have the use of a leg or two or an arm or two, and they are fully qualified pilots. Now, it's a little bit hard right now to put them in, you know, they're, they to get up on Southwest and roll on and climb into that cockpit of the 737. But, you know, we'll take them today um, and we'll put them to work and uh, they'll be a commercial pilot in the field and operating. And, you know, what a great thing. And uh, they can their day job can be fully in the aviation career, and uh, then they can they can go fly that whatever it is they their Piper Cub or whatever they may have uh, to go to go fly on the side. Hmm. I'm curious when you log this in your logbook, which column do we put this under? Anything different or? Um, well, right now because the FAA hasn't updated its regs. You are flying a single engine turbine, <laughs> right? So, so you get turboprop time and uh, single engine time, and I mean because that's what you're doing. You're operating that that particular aircraft, mm. and uh, that's what it is. I can see how maybe you know the the agency will update that at some point in the future. Um, but uh, you know, think about what are the core skills, right, of flying? And I still say it's about decision making. That is the core thing. Yes, there's manipulating the controls and in that, but I, I say we learn that fairly quickly, uh, except for the emergency conditions. But just you know, normal operations, yeah, stick and runner. We in, in modern airplanes, we we learn that fairly quickly. You don't need thousands of hours for that. But what? Why do we ha have people get a thousand, two thousand, three thousand hours before we bring them into carrying passengers around? It's that experience. It's that being out in the system and seeing how things happen and, and uh, you know, what a what a great way to do that. And um, we still we still need that good decision making. Do you think that in the future, 10 or 20 years from now, maybe that the the type of person that's attracted to this kind of piloting, if you will, would be different than what we see now? I, I think so. Um, I, I do see that. And, and I do see you know, the roles evolving, we'll find out exactly what it is. 
But sometimes, you know, when I look at these activities, it, it is it closer? I just asked the question. I'm not saying it is. I just asked the question. Is it closer to being a dispatcher or an air traffic controller than it is to being a typical pilot? Now, they all have to be very knowledgeable. They all ha- they they all have a lot of responsibilities of of literally hundreds of people and thousands of people, and they have to make key decisions and they have to make them quick. Um, but uh, obviously, they they haven't been out flying a traditional airplane um, necessarily. A lot of them do come, you know, have private pilot's license and and things like that. But they choose to go into that field. So I I, I do see it transitioning to something like that in the future. But I'm very much, like I said, evolutionary. We got it. We have to do those first steps. And I think it's a lot of work right now doing what we're doing, just putting together detect and avoid systems, putting in the autopilot systems that will manage a flight, not just keep it straight and level, but manage that whole flight that will shoot those approaches that will, you know, do those emergency procedures um, when they occur that is enough of an evolution now. And then it'll be on to somebody else who will have the new innovative thing that, that uh, can advance things a little bit further. Now, X-Wing has a couple of contracts, uh, one with the FAA, one with NASA. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the reason is for that, what the objectives are? Oh, sure. Um, and, and so to actually, to be really clear, it's um, we are a subcontractor to the Alaska test site, <laughs> okay, which is where and, and um, in, in which we're supporting both NASA and FAA. This is the UAS test site. Yep. Yep. Um, a, a good amount of it has to do with, well, how do we manage air traffic control with a remote pilot, right? Um, and, and just how does that whole system work? And how does it interact with it? So right now we have to, just because of all the regulations and everything, um, we broadcast from the aircraft just like normal. So we have to get a signal up to or down to the aircraft. I say down to because it could be coming from a satellite from from us. But you have to get that voice all the way to the uh, aircraft itself where it would talk out to everybody that would be in the listening range. But we're also looking at things like the data that comes off of that aircraft. Think of it right now. Um, look at where we're using ADSB antennas out there to absorb information. And then FAA has radars at different locations as well. Well, if you start having thousands of aircraft out there and all the little valleys and all these little airports, um, they're individual radar and ADSB receivers getting all that information and they um, are rebroadcasting it to us. And what, you know, should we do a tie-in with our command centers, um, just like an air traffic control system and feed it back to the air traffic control system. So those are the kind of things to look at. Not saying it's going to happen, but it's looking at what does that do? Is there some advantage of, of of using these things in firefighting is another area? Because, again, if you don't have to have the pilot sitting up there the whole time um, and, you know, there's different things you could be using it as a communications platform. You could be using it as an observation platform. Um, what are those roles and how can we can we do it and how do they just fit into the air traffic control procedures? Do they have to be anything different? So don't know all the different plans they have for us, the FAA and NASA has for us, but um, we're making our aircraft and our crew available um, to feed into whatever tests they, they come up with, and, and we'll see how that all works. 
You mentioned earlier on something about vision systems. Is that something that you think that uh, that picture will stay inside the cockpit just for see and avoid kinds of things? Or is that something you envision will come back to the console where the pilot can see what the view is from outside the airplane? So um, when I mention vision systems, um, I see these are – Right now, when you look at the various technologies, you need something to, and I'm, I'll get to go from 10 to the negative seven to 10 to the negative eight or nine. Okay. And, um, in terms of what you mean, in terms of the, the likelihood of it making through and being transmitted to you? Or? Well, well, I'll get, let's just do the approach and the okay. vision system on the approach. So I think some, some listeners will know there's things called cat two and three approaches where you can do the quote zero, zero landings. But that's some very expensive equipment that has to be tuned and maintained and the crews have to be trained and all that. And um, we, we're actually building a system that using all the technologies that we're using um, can, can basically get you that at least CAT-2 capabilities, if not CAT-3 capabilities, and a GA aircraft everywhere. It's just as an example. So it could still, you know, that, that's a piece of technology that is coming out of what we're doing because we can do that approach all the way down and right on those runways and, and detect things. Now, um, the vision systems are, are giving us that extra level of safety on top of the electronic that would come from that traditional land-based um, uh, systems that are, are tuned um, so we're adding in the vision technologies that can literally see the the white line going down the middle of the of, of the runway. Um, you know, it can identify the runway markings, that kind of things, and and that that adds on to the INS and ILS and GPS signals and surveys. So you're talking about adding some EVS capabilities to the airplanes. Um, but it's it's on the it's the computer seeing it. It's not. Um, it is not the necessarily the, the well. It's not on the approaches. It's not the remote pilot seeing that. Now that said, there are times where a picture is worth a thousand words, right? And let's just say our onboard systems, and these are already certified and available. There's icing detectors, and it tells us we got icing. Right, and so you turn on your TKS and. You know, you got your boots all boots on, or whatever, whatever you may have, and you got your system all lit up. Wouldn't it be nice to see what the wing looks like right now? Just a just a little bit. Are, are you know, are they weeping or is it going? So yes, we're looking at you know, we, we will have that that ability to you know send down a picture of the wing, see how what it looks like right now, and you know that that will help. That'll be supplemental. But the aircraft itself has a vision system. The aircraft itself knows what's going on. It knows there's icing. It turns the right things on. But uh, again, we can increase safety even more by having a picture transmitted down and and validating that. But you know how it goes. You're going to be in the worst thunderstorm ever. The aircraft will be bouncing all along, uh, all around. Um, and lightning just hit your receiving antenna. Um, you, you, you know, you know what I mean? So we, we, the aircraft itself has to be able to manage, uh, things all by, uh, you know, for the whole flight. And, it, and if it's heavy ice, just for one, I don't want to see the picture. Okay. Can I, can I put yeah. that out there? <laughs> if it's heavy ice. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like the light thing. You know, if you lose an engine at night, yeah, you get close to the ground, you turn the light on. If you don't like what you see, you turn the light <laughs> off. It exactly. Could be yeah. Like, so, okay, well, anyway. Same, same principle. Let's not scare the pilot. <laughs> 
How far along are we in in years to various degrees? We are um, right now looking at where we are. We're in that two to three year range to get all the equipment on the on board the aircraft certified. Since we're already an existing uh, air carrier, we'll have to update all of our procedures and training because you're going to have new training for the pilot, right? For how to use the new equipment and how do you dispatch it and new training for the guys in the ground and, you know, just everything that goes along with running an operation. And then um, there's still some missing rules. So we'll have to do that through uh, what I call the part 11 or an exemption request. But uh, and and though those will have to be articulated and, and, you know, that'll that'll take some time. It's uh, very likely this could be up and running with all normal certifications moving ahead and in a three year time frame. And um, that's the possibilities. But we all know you got to get it right first. Right. You, you've got to convince uh, Uncle Sam that uh, um, we've done everything right and they've they'll they'll issue us our our permissions. You're talking about the console in this world of remote work. I'm guessing you don't want people in their homes piloting these airplanes where no. they might be using a mouse to, you know, to actively look like it. I'm flying the airplane, but I'm really asleep at home. It, exactly, and in, in fact, um, you know, you had we, to ruin it, didn't you, Matt? Yeah, we had I, to, you had to I, ruin I, it. Um, and 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 so, uh, you, you know, I, I look at this, and and um, we're going to have in our our systems uh, mission control centers. But I think the image in folks' mind, think of an ATC center, okay? You know, backup power, hardened, uh, you know, we're, we're not using the public internet. Right, right. <laughs> yes, we're using internet protocol, but it goes directly to the satellite company, directly to the towers uh, for transmission. Um, yes, you have uh, protocols uh, for cybersecurity, Yes, the aircraft is smart enough to not take the instruction to fly certain locations. It just will say, thank you very much for that suggestion, but no, I'm not going there. <laughs> um, you know, and, and yes, uh, you know, all that has to be built in into the whole system. And, and again, that goes back to why it's so important to be an existing air carrier and know how to run an operation, having dispatching, think hazardous materials. You know, there's all kinds of set of rules. you got to load things on the aircraft. Probably great that we don't have the pilot on board with all those hazardous materials, but we got to track them. We got to be there when it leaves. We got to be there when it lands and we got to make sure we have that in control. Same thing with mail, right? U.S. Postal Service. It cannot be just, you know, out there. It's got to be watched and controlled along that that whole path. And, um, you know, it's it's not going to be somebody... Sorry, folks, you're not going to be sitting at home and uh, with your uh, with your computer and your your mouse there. So serious question here. I was reading a story literally just in the past day or two about an aircraft that had to go around because there was a, a maintenance worker that walked across uh, the field. If your vision system is not going back to, you know, for example, the remote pilot, are you going to have the capability to look for those kinds of you know unplanned, unforeseen, strange events that do occur? Yes. So um, on the ground, we use we also have LIDAR. So that does um, pick up obstacles. Now, no, I'm not going to be able to detect the nails on the runway <laughs> that flatten my tires. But yes, we can see the person, the deer um, that's there. Now, you know, whether we can, you know, we can pull up 
much faster or not? You know, once you're already committed and rolling down the runway, what will we instruct it to react, you know, at that point? But yes, we our systems can detect it. It does clear the runway. We will know whether there's another air, airplane on the runway. We'll know whether you know the the you know the mower is on 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 the runway while we're coming down on landing, and uh, you know that's all part of the requirements to do this safely. What does the uh, financial case look like now? I, I'm not going to ask you how much does this cost, but uh, almost in a different way. Is this technology something that um, does have a cost that's uh, significant enough to result in a, a multi-year payback period, or does it make sense right from the start? Oh, oh no, sure. It, it, it's uh, it, it's going to take some payback, but um, you, you know, think about the assets we're dealing with in cargo. So the you know these aren't uh, two hundred thousand dollar airplanes. Um, even if they're aged out, we're talking one point two million, one and a half million, just for the existing airframes. You're going to add uh, a significant set of avionics, right? And we all know what it's like to do a whole new flight deck. Okay, so uh, think think about that. Um, so not hiding from that. It's all certified uh, equipment, and um, it's going to have to be there. And then, of course, you got to recover your R and D to uh, put it forward. Just to, to give you a general, just kind of an example of something that that could be done. I, I mentioned how we fly for forty five minutes out, and then they go to a hotel room, and then fly forty five minutes back. Um, with this system, we we have hubs in right now in Raleigh, Lansing, Michigan, Dallas, Texas. Uh, we've got them up in Oregon, so we're you know all the way across the country. All right, and you could just with the time change, have somebody fly the aircraft out at the same time they always do out of Raleigh, finish that flight, pick up the next flight out of Dallas. And at the same time, fly that plane out, wow. <laughs> then pick up the third flight out of Oregon <laughs> and fly it, it. It's route, right? Now, I just got three flights in, in a row. Okay, so you can start to see how even with one pilot to one aircraft monitoring things. And, you know, I think over time, what uh, it'll change to be is is you'll have, it'll be more like controllers. You'll have You'll have pilots who take off aircraft and land them. And you'll have people, and then you'll have pilots who will monitor like ten different airplanes and crews, right? You know, and uh, and and sectors and things like that. I, I, you know, I don't think that's coming up anytime real soon, but I, I do see that's where it's, you know, where it's transitions to ultimately. But you know, you said, how, how, what does it benefit? Well, there, there's your benefit right there. You know, I, I, I can now have multiple flights, and they didn't have to move. I'm not paying for that hotel room. I'm not, you know, there, there's a lot of cost saved. Um, we didn't get rid of the pilot, but we have a lot of cost saved and we're getting more efficiency out of them. And then we get more efficiency out of the aircraft because now we can start flying the aircraft multiple locations. It doesn't have to just go out and sit there all day. It can start doing other flights during the day, come back to there at the end of the, at the correct time, load up and fly back. And so, Instead of having an asset, which is really where the million costs are, is just sitting there. Um, we're t- we're utilizing it and keeping it in the air, like the air, you know the bigger airlines can. 
Earl, I've just figured out the job I want. I want to be that guy who's monitoring the 10 aircraft because, darn it all, I'm going to log 10 times as many flight hours <laughs> at the end of the day. I mean, if it says 36 hours in my logbook for that day, I got the backup. I was controlling 10 airplanes. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but then, no, but then no, if, no, if no. it's the existing regs, you'll time out and you'll have, yeah, and you will have overflown your limit for the day. <laughs> <laughs> it's always something. It's always something. I'm sure the regs will catch up with us by the time we get there. <laughs> Earl, this has been a, a great conversation. And uh, where can our listeners go to learn more about X-Wing and maybe some of the opportunities? Sure. Well, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, there, you could always Google us, but uh, go to the website, xwing.com. But, you know, I, I like to highlight, you know, Google us because there's a lot of third parties who have flown on our aircraft that have done stories you can see videos of them, um, you know, and and listen to their judgment about what are we doing and and how we're going about this and how exciting it is. Um, you know, it's great to toot our own horn, and and we will, and I think we do uh, a better job than anybody else in this sector, and uh, we're far ahead. But uh, it's nice to have reinforcements from from others who aren't uh, uh, directly related to the company. All right, thank you, Earl. So will we see you at uh, AirVenture this year, Earl? You see me at AirVenture every year. I have not missed an AirVenture since 1986, and I still call it Oshkosh. I know, me too. First story is, well, it's kind of an update. Uh, This is Airbus and Qatar Airways settle A350 dispute. And this comes from live from a lounge.com. And you may recall that uh, back in, I think it was 2021, Qatar Airways complained to Airbus that some A350 fuselage paint was peeling and it was unsightly and they didn't want that. And it kind of escalated. Qatar grounded about 30 aircraft and asked Airbus for compensation Airbus said it was only a cosmetic issue, and they would address that, but not all this um, compensation. Uh, The negotiations didn't go well. Qatar refused to take new deliveries, so Airbus canceled the A350 contract with Qatar. And and then Airbus canceled an order for A321neo jets with Qatar, and Qatar responded by filing a lawsuit in London. So it just kind of escalated and got increasingly um, uncomfortable for a supplier and a customer, you could say. Well, now both parties have uh, made up, apparently. They've each issued a statement, the same statement, by the way, uh, and they say, quote, they've reached an amicable and mutually agreeable settlement, although the terms have not been made public. Doesn't this sound like a, a, a segment from divorce court? Kind of does. <laughs> I, I was actually thinking of uh, a TV show about lawyers where one of them said, "And now what? Now we do what we do. We pick a number." <laughs> so I'm sure that's that's what they did. They kind of picked a number. I, I don't know. All, all the years that this has been going on, I never could quite understand the the complexities here. I mean, if I spent, I, I forgot how much an A350 costs. You know, three hundred million or whatever it is. Uh, and, and the paint started to to chip. I'd be I'd be very upset. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, I really would. I I'm not sure if I would have uh, seen it as a uh, 
a safety issue. I, I wondered all the time the story was rolling, whether that was a bit of a red herring, but uh, it, it might not have been. But it sounds like uh, they're, uh, they've worked it out, and now they can buy all those airplanes that uh, Airbus made for them that, that they weren't taking. But, boy, I'd still like to know what the, what the real issue was. Yeah, it it may be economic. Now, I'm not saying Qatar did this or that Airbus did that, but we've seen in the past where an airline maybe is contractually obligated to take certain aircraft and they want to push them out and they don't want to pay the you know the, the cancellation fees or the delay fees. And so, you know, maybe you create a situation where you don't have to do anything because it gets done for you and you know maybe maybe somebody's squeezing somebody for, to negotiate a better price I, there's all these different uh, kind of you know behind the scenes possibilities and i don't know if any of them apply in, in this case or not but uh, you you kind of wonder all right we see in aviation week startup says its personal ev tall is is the one for supercar customers and, Rob, this is about Air, right, an Israeli company. They've been developing and testing a sport eVTOL that they say is easy to handle and can be used daily. Well, that's what they say. But as anybody who is an avid listener and or reader of aviation intelligence knows that over the last four years, maybe five, everybody has uh, an EVTOL or uh, uh, something to that effect that that there sure is right there, and uh, so it. Um, I, Earl, and since you're still with us, what is that crazy shaped thing that flies every year at at Oshkosh that looks like a a tube, and it it it, it seems to have no. Basis of propulsion, but it it just kind of black wanders. Fly. There you go, the black fly, and uh, again another uh, personal vehicle. Uh, and again, I, I don't have any uh, uh, any animosity to these to these fellows at all. I'm sure they have a, a a great machine. It's just that we hear so many claims of this is really going to be the one, and and I think that. Uh, I was uh, I was into the story right up until the last sentence when it said they're they're planning first deliveries next year, and I went, okay. Um, I just wondered exactly some of the issues that you were talking about, Earl. How are they going to uh, kind of manage these things in the current ATC system that we have? Um, Will it have a uh, you know a two way radio and I'll keep one at uh, at uh, Whitman Field and and fly it down to uh, uh, to Milwaukee for a a flight uh, you know it, 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 just one more and I, I guess I'm getting a bit uh, a bit jaded with all of these it's going to happen this is the one I always just uh, bring up one thing is is so when did they apply for their airworthiness certificate. So Blackfly that you brought up is uh, considered an ultralight, um, single place and under the weight limit. So they have the ability to, to operate. But That's I'm, right. And this I'm, one's not going to be an ultralight. Yeah. 
Yeah, whenever I see anything that they say it'll be available to the masses, um, yeah, it may be available to somebody in a year, but uh, um, last time I've checked, I haven't seen anybody do a full up certification in less than five years. So um, that's that's why you know we we started we, we're starting with an already certified aircraft and just adding uh, some modifications, and even that's three years. Well, this uh, this air, I think this is the Air One. They call it. Uh, it's really impressive looking i think it it you know they they talk about in the in the uh, in the article or in the uh, headline for the article you know the one for supercar customers you know if you can afford uh, your you know ferrari or lamborghini or something like that and you like that kind of design stuff i i think you'd love one of these things if uh, you could actually buy one uh, they're they're a winged multicopter high fixed wings seats two four arms with dual motors and propellers on uh, on each arm. It's not a tilt rotor. Uh, it's more like a quadcopter. It's uh, it's pretty zippy. Maximum speed 155 miles an hour. Cruise speed 100. Uh, maximum flight time one hour. Uh, and you can pre-order one if you like. They say they have 300 pre-orders, which is pretty substantial. And the the price of the pre-order is a one thousand dollar deposit, and they say the the base price is one hundred and fifty thousand for for these. So we'll see what happens, and uh, we'll let you know. Yeah, I totally agree. With over two hundred companies having announced EV tolls, there's going to be a lot of venture capital lost, a lot of wreckage along the side of the road. You know, my guess is, you know, five ten years, yeah, there might be five of those companies that are out there uh, successful. And you mentioned uh, Blackfly. It's in a story just uh, a week ago. I found it here. And they had said something about, hey, we're feeling good about 2023. I opened up the story and it said, oh, we're going to start taking orders in 2023. <laughs> Huge difference. I mean, the headline kind of led you to believe, oh, my gosh, they're feeling good. That might ship. It's like, no, we're feeling good about taking orders. So big difference between orders and shipments. So it'll be interesting to see if they uh, head up to uh, AirVenture this year. I would think that would be the perfect show for them. Well, a good place to bring your order book for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, Rob, there is a story that you found in The Atlantic. Actually, it's from some years ago, from 2019. Yeah, three or four years ago or something. But I, I stumbled across this when I was uh, conducting some research for something else for a different story. And I, I reread uh, Jerry Usim's uh, piece it essentially details the split of Boeing from its engineering side uh, into its current day business focus and what it costs the company. Uh, people have been uh, complaining or you know about it for years, and uh, I thought he made a very compelling case, and uh, uh, so I, I would encourage anybody that hasn't had a chance to read it, uh, to to look at how Boeing evolved after the McDonnell Douglas, uh, well, I wouldn't call it a merger if you listen to him, uh, more of a takeover. But uh, and he has our uh, our friend Richard Abalafia in there uh, a number of times talking about how this evolved and essentially, I believe the story is saying so. Would the MCAS uh, and the uh, uh, accidents with the Max have occurred if Boeing hadn't picked up and moved to Chicago, which they've since moved again. 
and I believe they're in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, because they couldn't uh, uh, couldn't stay in Chicago anymore. And uh, so did they throw them out? Did, uh, did the well, city? Throw no, them? they just you know it's it's a funny thing, but no one could. Fi- I mean, when the uh, uh, the state of Illinois and the city of Chicago gave Boeing some uh, uh, what would we call it uh, uh, a little. Uh, a little grease to make the transition easier uh, with uh, uh, some cash. No one could figure out why they were in Chicago. Uh, what what did Chicago offer that uh, they, they couldn't get anywhere else? And uh, Boeing used to keep its corporate airplanes. They have a couple of BBJs and a couple of Challengers, and they had to keep them at Chicago Gary Airport uh, on the, the other side of the Illinois, uh, Indiana state line because the city of Chicago would not give Boeing any hangar space at Midway. And we all went, uh, you went to all this trouble to bring this company here from Seattle, but you, you won't even give them a hangar. Uh, that sounds a little, well, so Boeing finally disappeared and but it still hasn't solved the problem. Uh, the engineering side and the business side have, have still not really come together. Yeah, that's a structural thing that you know they kind of created themselves. And do they recognize it first of all? And, and then secondly, do they think it matters? I think the rest of us are kind of thinking it matters. And I'm kind of thinking they believe it doesn't because when they left Chicago— they didn't go back west. They went even yes. further, away further away to the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. We have an item from the uh, Aviation Herald. FedEx B763 and Southwest B737 at Austin on February 4th, 2023. Loss of separation on runway resolved by go-around. Uh, so a FedEx... 767-300 was on final for a Cat 3 ILS approach. This was at Austin, Texas on runway 18 left. And they were cleared to land. The tower let the crew know of the FedEx plane that a Boeing 737 would depart prior to their arrival. And then after the 767 was cleared to land... This Southwest Airlines 737 was holding short on the same runway for departure and was cleared to take off from that runway. Well, the, the tower let the Southwest pilots know that a Boeing 767 Heavy was on three, a three-mile final. And about 30 seconds later, the tower asked if they were on a roll. The crew confirmed they were. And then shortly thereafter, like 25 seconds later, Someone says, Southwest abort. The FedEx has to go around. And then the tower acknowledged and instructed the 737 to turn right when able. However, the 737 continued takeoff. Well, the 767 performed a go-around from about 150 feet AGL, about 1,000 feet short of the runway threshold. This was so close to an... This was so close to practically a Tenerife kind of situation. There are versions of the audio uh, flying around the internet. Uh, But again, if you uh, listen to it, it's just absolutely scary. And I I know anybody that is a 
a controller out there would listen to this, uh, uh, and they had it in real time, I think, on ATZ Live, so you could hear the gaps. Uh, 767 doing, I don't know, 140 knots or whatever he's doing on final, uh, in practically zero, zero conditions, uh, he lets a guy go on the runway in front of this man, uh, and and the, the, the 737 wasn't even on the runway at the time. Uh, and, and I just went, ooh, because it made me cringe uh, to, to think about that. Uh, and, and I've been up in a tower when things looked a little close, and some of us, you know, super experienced guys, you know, two, three years up there would say, okay, let's, let's see how he's going to make this one work. You know, but it was never, it was never in, in bad, bad weather conditions because you knew there were so many limitations to the crew and the aircraft that, that was planning to take off. It takes time in, in an, a 600 RVR condition to get out on the runway and find the center line and make sure they don't run off the other way and, and get ready for takeoff. And uh, this controller uh, at uh, at Austin was just kind of, yeah, guys, uh, you know, are you rolling yet? And I, I, I was amazed at, at how calm he sounded. And uh, my guess is that uh, between him and the pilots of the 7-3, uh, as Max and I spoke about this morning, it said, hey, wait a minute. We, we know the weather's really sucky out here, and there's a heavy jet, a three-mile final, doing uh, two and a half miles a minute. Uh, now we'll just wait because we're going to need a little extra time. Uh, they took the clearance, and then they kind of took their own sweet time getting uh, getting moving. I, I, boy, I would love to hear the uh, chief pilot at Southwest talking to these guys, as uh, uh, Max suggested to me this afternoon. Wouldn't you, Max? Yeah, I think that uh, it was certainly under normal circumstances, putting somebody on the runway with a three aircraft on three mile final is going to work out just fine the vast majority of the time with rvr uh, at 1400 600 and 1800 along the runway yeah it's going to take a while to get on the runway <laughs> you're going to be extra careful you're going to definitely be moving slower so yeah t- i think two problems here one controller probably shouldn't have put the southwest out on the runway and two the southwest probably should have said, no, we're going to just hold here and wait for him to land. Uh, because if you accept a takeoff clearance and then you just take your sweet time getting out on the runway, you're setting up a potential problem. So yeah, this, uh, this could have been worse. I mean, the good news is that, uh, the FedEx started to go around before he'd even reached the runway. So it was what about a thousand feet before the runway. So that's good. I looked at the uh, data points and I could see that the FedEx overflew the Southwest by about 500 feet by the time both of them were midway down the runway. So they got within 500 feet of each other, maybe a little bit closer than that. The real disaster would have been if FedEx had landed and then rolled into the back of the departing uh, Southwest jet. I don't recall seeing it, but I imagine the NTSB will investigate this one, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Could have been much worse. All right. The F-22 Raptor had its first kill. I didn't know that there had not been one, although if you think about it, 
I can't think of any opportunities to it. But this first kill was a Chinese balloon, which is fine. No, it's not. How much did we spend developing the... I'm sorry, it, we should have David here tonight. I mean, how much did we spend developing the F-22, you know, 20 years ago? That's exactly what went through my head. <laughs> the first thing it did was take down a helpless, undef- undefensible weather balloon that was just <laughs> hanging there in midair. And and I'm sure that uh, the, uh, the, the uh, I can't think of what they call the people that direct the fighter airplanes to the target, uh, but, and they probably ended with, and if you miss this one, don't come back. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I saw a story that uh, years ago, the, uh, the Canadians tried to shoot down a weather balloon under similar circumstances. They expended a thousand rounds and they were not able to bring it down. So that was probably a little embarrassing to go back and go, well, yeah, we tried, but uh, couldn't, couldn't bring it down. Apparently it may have sprung a leak, but uh, you know, not sufficient to bring it down uh, you know, as quickly as the Canadians were hoping to bring it down. Yeah, this was an this was an AIM nine X Sidewinder missile, and yeah, I wish David was here because uh, what I was going to one of the things I was going to ask is uh, did the did the missile explode because it made contact, or is there a you know a detonate? I don't know how that Sidewinder uh, works, or did they just fly it through the balloon? And not, it, I guess from the video, it doesn't look like they just flew it through the through the. Uh, you know, the balloon, uh, which caused it to deflate. It looked like... Well, they said it was a heat-seeking... I, I, I'm just... One source I read said it was a heat-seeking missile, but how much where's the heat? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I was kind of wondering how, do you, how you get it to lock onto the balloon. Maybe it's got some other capabilities above and beyond, uh, you know, heat, because certainly it seems like that would be hard to uh, to target it. But on the other hand... It's huge. I think they said seven stories tall. So if you just got close and fired, it's bound to go through it. Yeah. So uh, it's mentioned, but uh, listener Tom also pointed out that the F-22 call signs were Frank-01 and Frank-02. You know, well, what's, why, why those call signs? And uh, apparently... It was uh, related to a World War I hero, Frank Luke Jr., who was credited with shooting down 14 German balloons during the war. So I, it's, it, it was uh, appropriate call signs. I, I'm just kind of mostly amazed that someone was able to draw a connection like that and say, hey, I know what the call signs should be. That's because someone had a history person on staff. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, there are some uh, some other articles around because one of the questions people are asking is, well, why would you want to use these stratospheric balloons when you when we have satellites that can perform all these kinds of you know sensing operations? And what I've seen are a couple of reasons why balloons like this make sense for intelligence gathering. One is that they can hover closer to the ground. Um, they may be able to intercept communications signals that orbiting systems can't. Uh, also, a satellite, of course, is entirely predictable. You know what the orbit is, so if you've got a sensitive facility or whatever that it's um, that it flies over, you can prepare for that. 
park the airplanes in the hangar, you know, the, the secret airplanes. Or if you know it's coming, if you know someone's watching, you can do something about it. But also the United States has looked at balloons in this kind of a role as well. Well, sort of. There was that J-Lens program. I don't know if you remember that. That was that $2.7 billion program. That was a a program, an idea where they would uh, station aerostats. I think the test area was around um, around Washington, D.C., that would provide um, intel- intelligence gathering. They would uh, um, you know, look for incoming bad guys and stuff like that. But in 2017, that program was canceled because, and you may remember this part of it, one of those aerostats broke free and it floated from Maryland into Pennsylvania and it crashed in a field and it caused power outages in Pennsylvania. So they they, they sort of killed the aerostat idea. Hmm. I see down in the article, I had missed this earlier, it says the balloon's envelope would be uh, largely transparent to radar uh, energy, but that they thought that the balloon might be you know, large enough to, uh, you know, provide some <laughs> reflectivity. So kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I don't understand is that uh, when I first heard about this last week, you know, the balloon was spotted over Montana. And I thought, Gee, what, this balloon just appeared over Montana? I mean, but of course, the, you know, there, there are so much about this story that, that we're never going to know. And the fact that the... Uh, the U.S. was tracking this thing before it even hit Alaska, uh, days before. And they were coordinating with the Canadians because it overflew Canadian airspace. And um, uh, now what it was doing there, was it simply a provocative tink on the nose from the Chinese? Was there something more uh, devilish involved? I don't know. But I still can't understand why the U.S. allowed this thing to fly over uh, the United States. I mean, uh, they, they could have taken... I mean, let's be serious. If something like that had flown into or, or busted uh, Chinese sovereign airspace, they'd have taken it down in a heartbeat. Um, I, I'm not sure if I like the message that this sends. Well, I think they may have trying to figure out what kind of steering capability it has. If you look at what Google uh, did with the uh, the Loon balloons a few years ago, uh, those were steerable to some extent just by changing altitude. So it would be interesting to, uh, I'm sure, for the U.S. government to, to watch and see, hey, are these things going up and down? And are they, be able, are they able to actually do some steering by doing that. So I'm sure they probably learned more than they would have. They just shot it down immediately. Hmm. Yeah. I, you know, we can start to wade into political issues, but which we I wanna, knew you were going to say that. We, we wanna, In fact, I was going to begin with, no, I don't want to be political. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, anyway. But yeah, I mean, there's talk in Congress about hearings or some explanation, you know, something or other. And I don't see why any of that's necessary. I mean, it could be anything like, hey, we knew exactly when they launched that sucker in China, but we don't want to tip our hand. We, maybe we have complete information. Maybe we have a lot more information about what they're doing than we want them to know. And so if there's a, a determination that, you know, there's really not that much harm in it floating where it was floating, maybe you don't want to tip your hand. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time. And guys, imagine if... Worst had come to worse uh, if they'd started dropping 
turkeys out of the balloon. <laughs> and if you're not old enough, listeners, if you're not old enough to get that joke, then I'm sorry. Go ask your grandpa. Yeah, go ask grandpa or go look up WKRP. Exactly. We all love WKRP. All right, one, one final news item from simpleflying.com. Uh, Max Trescott, a Boeing 737 crashed fighting fires in Australia. Yeah, this is uh, kind of breaking news. We just found about found out about this earlier today. In fact, one of our listeners uh, sent a note to find out if we had heard about this, and we told him, yes, we have. And he said, wow, you're really on top of things. So, yes, we do look for news all over the uh, the world. Um, so this particular aircraft was operated by uh, Colson Aviation, which I believe is based here in the U.S. Obviously, they have contracts uh, around the world, uh, so they were uh, on contract in Australia says that they departed from the Bustleton Airport, which would be on Australia's west coast at about uh, 3.32, then climbed up to 29,000 feet, flew over an hour to a place on the southeast uh, part of the continent where it descended to 700 feet to drop uh, some type of uh, you know, firefighting. Fire uh, fl- I can't say it. Firefighting fluid <laughs> on, the, uh, on the, uh, the ground. And it had done that... Um, Three times. And on the third time, it apparently uh, only reached about 1,800 feet when it climbed out before it crashed. Now, the good news is that both pilots were retrieved by a helicopter and are said to have minor injuries, so they were both taken to the uh, the hospital. I was trying to look this up. I don't know that there's ever been a jet-powered firefighting tanker uh, in the past that's crashed. We've had a number of firefighting aircraft that have crashed. I think they've all been uh, piston engines. Uh, you know, when you think about 737s, these are remarkably reliable, and you just don't expect them to uh, you know, have multiple engine failures or something that would bring the aircraft down. Even in the case of a single engine failure, it should still be able to fly. So it's going to be interesting to find out exactly uh, what happened, uh, but it's certainly very fortunate these uh, pilots survived. Well, and if you look at the, the uh, track on uh, FlightAware, uh, or was it Flight Radar 24? I can't remember which was uh, included in the story. But, I mean, flight. they dropped to the ground pretty darn quickly. And uh, uh, I I can't believe these two pilots got away and had very, very minor injuries. Yeah, it's shocking. Anytime a jet crashes, you kind of expect virtually everybody to, to pass away. So I'm always amazed when we have jet crashes where, where people survive. Yes. So this was a a former Southwest plane. The article is really, I I don't know, this is too many significant digits. It was a 27.32-year-old aircraft. I think that's too many significant digits. Um, Airplane was built in 1995, delivered uh, in November 1995 also. So, yeah, we'll, obviously we'll... uh, learn a lot more about this in the uh, in coming weeks and months. What's up with the geeks? I don't have anything interesting to say, really. Rob, maybe you do? Ah, uh, well... <coughs> Excuse me, you'll cut that part out. Um, yes, I had, I had a really fun uh, visit to the Chicago Tracon last week, which is the approach control for uh, the Chicagoland area, everything within a 40-mile radius of Chicago O'Hare. And the, the facility is 
actually not located at O'Hare. It's in a uh, a building about uh, mm, 50 miles west of Chicago in Elgin, Illinois. Uh, but it was it was really a hoot. I hadn't been in a radar room in quite a while, and uh, uh, the the folks that uh, uh, invited me were very nice, very cordial. Even though it was FAA, I think they, I think they kept expecting me to steal something or other because they kept watching me. But uh, I, I'm sure it wasn't that. Uh, but it was really fun to watch uh, uh, the, uh, the the people, uh, you know, running the approaches into. Uh, I forgot how many runways O'Hare has now, six, eight. I can't, I can't even remember anymore because they keep. They keep adding them, but but the but the real beauty of watching this was how intricately the airspace is structured, so that the guy running, you know, a center runway for arrivals comes in at seven thousand, and the the other guys coming from a different direction for the right runway come in at five, and coming from a different direction they're going at four and the departures only go to this altitude and this hat, you know, it was really, it was just, it was so simple, but yet it worked so well. And, and that was what the controllers were trying to tell me is that if, you know, the airline pilots get it and the professional pilots get it. They just wish that more of the, uh, uh, the, the GA pilots got, got the, uh, issue, in their heads the way they do, because, of course, O'Hare also controls uh, approaches to, oh, I forgot what it is. It's it's more than, it's right around two dozen satellite airports. So these folks are really, uh, really busy. And uh, it was just, it was just really uh, a, a hoot to uh, to be there. But it was so dark in that room and I thought, oh, man, this is what happens when you get old. Because when I worked in a radar room before, it was always dark for 15 seconds maybe until the pupils of your eyes uh, opened up and you could, you know, attract more light. And this one, I I kept saying to the approach controller, how can you see what you're writing on that strip? It is so dark in here. And he said, I don't have any trouble seeing it. I said, you weren't supposed to say that. (laughs) And I realized that I guess maybe my, uh, what is it, cones and rods you have in your eyes? Uh, Which is it that that, uh, uh, works for your night vision? Those would be the the rods that are in the periphery of the eye. Maybe my rods have blown a piston or something. (laughs) I I don't know, but it was... uh, but you know, I t- I will tell you one thing. They they allowed me to take some pictures um, in there, and I had a thirty. I was telling Max uh, T this, but I had a thirty-five millimeter with me, and it was so dark in there, the shutter wouldn't even open. And one of the guys working a satellite position off to the side said, "Hey, Rob, have you got your iPhone with you?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Try that." And I opened up my iPhone. This is a thirteen. And it took photos that were so crisp and clear, it looked like it was daylight inside that room. And I went, whoa. 
I was really impressed. But anyway, so again, a big thanks to all the folks at uh, the Chicago Tracon that let me come over and visit. And hopefully, maybe they'll let me come back. But I haven't heard that exactly yet. Uh, so, but everywhere, maybe that letter's coming. So everywhere you go, they're making old jokes. Is that what you're telling me? Um, yeah, I and I feel very. I'm very sensitive about my age. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've know, noticed that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's because uh, people tend to, well, people tend to pick on me, and I, I don't know why. I just try to be nice to everybody, and and they just pick on me. Why do you guys think that happens? <laughs> the reason you visited, they they told you to copy a phone number, so you just showed up in person. Is that what happened? Exactly. I thought, why fuss around with all the bureaucracy when I can be there in person and and listen? The didgeridoo means it's time for the Australia News Desk. Here's two of the craziest guys we could find south of the equator. It's Steve Vischer and Grant McHaren from the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast. Dateline, 5th of February, 2023. Good Lord, Grant. 5th of February, there's something I've got to remember about 5th of February. Oh, my goodness, it's my anniversary. Welcome to the Australia Desk for episode 736. Good Lord, Grant, we better get this recorded quickly so I can get out of here or I'll be in humongous trouble. I know, right? What are we doing recording on your anniversary? I mean, it could be worse. We could be recording on mine, which is on Wednesday. Oh, there you go. Well, my, my poor unfortunate wife, 29 years we've been married today. Don't you feel sorry for her? I know I do. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? She feels sorry for herself. But I mean, what is it about February? I mean, it's your anniversary. My anniversary with kid is coming up on Wednesday. My parents is later in the month. What the heck? What is up with these February weddings? I'll tell you what, because right here in Australia, my friend, it's the middle of summer. It's the best time if you're going to get married and have an outdoor wedding. Well, (laughs) normally February here in this part of the world is pretty nice weather, but it hasn't been very nice weather here at all this year. I know. The stunned silence on my end gives it all away. It has been like 15 to 19 degrees centigrade here in Melbourne, which is sort of down around the... Or 50 Fahrenheit area, where normally it should be 80 to 90 Fahrenheit. That is winter weather for us, I can tell you. Anyway, um, one thing we don't see a lot of here in Melbourne, although, you know, occasionally we do, is snow. But uh, (laughs) did you see this story, Grant, about a gentleman travelling in the United States who went to Sydney, but, well, not exactly the right Sydney? I know. It wasn't Sydney. It was Sydney, Montana. So this gentleman's name was Kingsley Burnett, and uh, he's uh, tried to book the ticket himself. He's made a bit of a mistake. I don't know, Grant. Here's what he had to say. I saw mountain top covered with white snow. At that point, I knew I was in trouble. Imagine how it would feel to think you're landing in Sydney, Australia, and here you are in Billings, Montana. Well, I don't know, Grant. Some people might chalk that up as a win. Don't hate me, Sydney people. Grant at southernskiesmedia.com.au for any complaints. (laughs) Hey, hey, hey. No, 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 no. Abuse email goes to iamreallyoffended at yahoo.com. It really exists, and Brian monitors it. Oh, there you go. Well, enjoy that, Brian, and uh, all our Sydney listeners will be flooding your inbox with that, yes. Now, of course, the Sydney airport code is Sierra Yankee Delta SYD, but apparently Sydney, Montana is Sierra Delta Yankee SDY, and he's typed in the wrong code, and he's ended up there. Now, perhaps he might have wondered, Grant, I don't know, why didn't I have to use my passport? I know, like, and how come I'm landing on the same day I took off? And why is it only a couple of hours to get there from New York instead of a couple of days? Hello? 
Oh, dear. Well, look, uh, good luck to that gentleman, Kingsley Burnett. I hope he makes it out here. Apparently, Grant, uh, he's got it all sorted out and he'll be uh, out here later in the year. And I'm pretty sure he'll be a uh, media celebrity when he does arrive in uh, Sydney Airport. I suspect so. Uh, yeah, thanks to a couple of folks at the uh, airport and the hotel over in uh, in Billings, Montana, I believe it was, where he landed before his little flight across to Sydney. Um, yeah, he uh, uh, they they took him aside and had a couple of discussions and rescheduled everything for him, helped him out, got him accommodation, and then sent him home the next day. So apparently, he's going to be down here in June. Okay. Well, good luck for him, and <laughs> consequently. It's actually the middle of winter for us, but I still don't. It certainly might be snowing in Sydney. It's a bit warmer than here. Just ask anybody uh, from Sydney. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll it'll be in the fifties uh, at least to sixties easily uh, when he's here in winter. Yeah, there we go. Okay, Grant. Now you know um, we've been in broadcasting a long time. When we can look at an aviation story and say it's the tenth anniversary of something we covered. Well, way back in 2013, and that has to do with the alliance between Qantas and Emirates, which is now 10 years old. Oh, my God. As the phrase goes, Kafek, it's Emiru. Yes, well, that's actually the title of the segment. I think we did that time, wasn't it? (laughs) I think it is, mate. Go to australiadesk.net and you too could find this. So the article we see here in uh, executivetraveller.com is uh, talking about um, whether or not that's actually been a good move. You know, I, I suppose it probably would be. I mean, it, it certainly did help Qantas uh, unlock a much wider route network. Now, um, you know, Emirates, of course, um, is a significant airline anywhere you go in the world, and that's certainly Australia is no exception. We see a lot of their aircraft flying in here, and it does give Qantas passengers the option to co-chair and uh, travel on their flights, which is, uh, I think it's a good thing. Now, having said that i've not been uh, someone who's done that myself but uh i'm sure many people have uh, it's certainly been great for emirates uh, a stack of Qantas frequent flyers have now wound up on emirates they're uh, flying emirates to all parts of the globe and yeah jumping Qantas to get across and many of them are just going emirates all the way and uh using their Qantas uh, frequent flyer id to get Qantas points while they fly Emirates, who many of them prefer over Qantas. They think the business and first class products are much better than you get in Qantas. So, uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a bit mixed. It's been a bit of a shot in the foot for Qantas, but in some cases. But there's many people who go, "No, I'm flying Qantas the whole way. I don't care about Emirates." But there's been many who have gone, whoopee, we can fly Emirates, and it's certainly been good for Emirates, that's for sure. Well, certainly with all the bad press that Qantas has been getting lately in the media with all their turnbacks, and I note with interest, Grant, in the last week we've had a, a Qantas Link uh, Q400 turn back uh, after hitting some pretty severe turbulence, and of course the media again has gone into overdrive about that. Quite a CEO, Alan Joyce, has gone on the offensive here, and uh, as we said a couple of weeks ago, you know, I don't, you know, really, are these things as uncommon? Is it just something that's happening to Qantas all of a sudden? I don't really know that it is. Alan Joyce uh, was on uh, all the media channels this week having a chat about uh, that issue and some other ones. Here's what he had to say about turnbacks. And these are very rare. I think one in 2,000 Qantas flights has a turn back. But they are an important part of the safety management system. Um, And they do happen more often than people think. Around the world, there's 10,000 turnbacks that happen every year. We have around 60 on Qantas every year, 200 on Qantas link every year and that was the same before COVID 
and we're no different from what we're seeing on a major competitor here. In fact, in January, on the 737 fleet, Qantas had the same number of turnbacks as our major competitor did. There was no difference. And it's not the airlines that do the turnback that you should be worried about. It's the airlines that keep on going to the destination and don't make that turnback. I'll say what you like about Ellen Joyce, Grant, but he sure does know how to stay on message. And I'm sure the people in the boardroom at Virgin Australia, the competitor to which he was referring, will not be very thrilled to hear him (laughs) saying things like that. (laughs) I know, but uh, no wonder it's cold here in Melbourne because we're kind of agreeing with Ellen Joyce. So maybe it's a cold day in hell. (laughs) But but I mean, yeah, on statistical average and... Qantas is right there with the rest of them, if not better. But six in one week, one or two weeks, that's pretty full on. I'm going to discount the Dash 8 because that hit turbulence. Uh, having been in a, in a little um, Saab 340 that went through a complete roller coaster, I know, I've never done aerobatics in a Saab 340 until that day going to um, Illawarra. But, you know, it happens. Turbulence happens. The upshot is, though, that... Uh, like Qantas got it all in one week in terms of 737s, which is about three from memory, whereas Virgin spread it over a month. So, yeah, maybe it's a cluster, maybe on average over the if, – if nothing else happens for the rest of the year, this will be fine. Or maybe it's a precursor indication that something's going wrong when you cut the margins on how you do maintenance so that you're not really doing it – you know, there's some airlines that do it right to what you've got to do plus a bit more. There's some that do just the bare minimum. Bare minimum leads to stuff like this. Maybe that's it. It's too early to tell. Maybe it was just a cluster. We'll know in the next month. Who knows? And, of course, he did quantify that by saying it was the 737 fleet because the competitor that he was referring to now only flies 737s. Now, Grant, also, um, he was also talking about some of the service issues. Now, if you've been watching any of the media down here, of course, in this part of the world, Qantas has really been copying and bagging, no pun intended there, for the way they've been handling baggage (laughs) and cancellations and all sorts of other things. It really has not been... A very smooth recovery from the COVID period. Here's what Alan Joyce had to say about that. First of all, Nat, we were seeing the operational performance of Qantas get back to or be better than it was before COVID. We've just... I apologised to our customers six months ago about the performance of the company at the time. And we have now seen in January that our on-time performance was better than it was before COVID. Uh, We're seeing our cancellation levels or mishandled bags at the same levels and our call centre better. Well, I don't know if that really says a lot about the way Qantas was prior to COVID, if that's the case, to be really oh. honest. They've lost, they've lost my bags a few times, I can tell you that. They certainly screwed everything royally as we opened up out of COVID. Um, you know, well, what do you expect? They outsourced everything to uh, companies where staff are being paid the minimum, but they're not getting any flight benefits. Mm. In the old days, if you worked for Qantas, even as a bag chucker, you got flight benefits. You could take your family flying. Not anymore. If you're an outsourced provider, you don't get flight benefits. And there goes half the reason why a lot of people actually put up with the crazy hours and the crappy pay. Okay, well, that's everything we have for you on uh, this week's Australia Desk. Well, Grant, that makes, what, five, six in a row now? We're keeping count here. Yeah, that's five in a row, which is more than we did in the whole of, I think it was 2021. Uh, It's Almost, it's, it's over double what we did in 2022 and etc. So I think this is the most we've done in a single year since we decided to hang up our spurs back in 2015. I think it's fair to say we're back permanently. Sorry about that, Rob. Oh, well, we won't pick on him too much. Until next week, I'm Steve Fisher And I'm Grant McCarran. And what more can I say but we're back.
Cheers, folks. All right, we have a little bit of listener meal. Meal. Listen, we have a listener Me- meal. Meal? <laughs> we're, we're cannibalizing our listeners. We have a little listener mail, a couple of items. We heard from Michael. He says, hello, airplane geeks. Just finished listening to your latest podcast and your discussion of the NTSB comments on the 737 MAX Ethiopian air crash. Michael says, I highly recommend listening to the AOPA There I Was podcast episode with NTSB Vice Chair Bruce Landsberg. Lots of good info on a few of the subjects that you discussed. Enjoying the show. Keep up the great work. And we'll put a link in the in the show notes to the AOPA podcast page. They actually have seven podcasts. The Pilot Briefing podcast, Hangar Talk, Ask the A&Ps, Never Again, There I Was, that's what we're talking about here, Pilot Protection Services podcast, and Flying Clubs Radio and you don't have to be a member of AOPA to subscribe to or follow these podcasts. Uh, the one that Michael is referring to with Bruce Landsberg, that was the uh, January 4th, 2023 episode. Again, that's on There I Was. Um, and it is a very interesting, uh, interesting conversation. Bruce does mention many of the things that we mentioned. He's got more color behind it, maybe a little more authority in some cases. But basically, the, the same as, as you know, we said that the Ethiopian investigation kind of focused on the hardware and not so much on the people involved in it. And the FAA and the French BEA tried to provide comments uh, about that, which were not included. So, uh, yeah, check that out. And we should mention that Bruce was on the show here way back in episode 106, Bruce Landsberg, back when he was president of what was then called AOPA's Air Safety Foundation, now the Air Safety Institute. Now, the name of that episode was called Walking the Elk. Any, I have no idea why it was called that. Any idea? No, I can't remember. Okay. It, there must have been some some reference. I, mean, I know we had a Rainbows and Unicorns title for one of the episodes. I know where that came from. And then we also heard from Harold, who writes to say he found this um, story on CNN. It's titled, The People Who Live Inside Airplanes. And it's about people living in repurposed aircraft. They list a number of examples. Some of them go back a ways. One is a beautician uh, from Mississippi. She bought an old Boeing 727, was going to go to the scrapyard. I guess she didn't pay very much for uh, for it, but she created a 1,500-square-foot home on property that she already owned. Uh, she, It had a kind of a sad ending. She lived in the plane from 1995 until 1999, and then it was being moved to a, a different location nearby, it says, but it fell off the truck, and it was damaged beyond <laughs> effective repair. Uh, an electrical engineer with a private pilot license. He heard her story, and he's been living in a former uh, Olympic Airways 727 for over 20 years. Uh, there's uh, more examples in the article, but it, it's kind of neat what people have done. And I know why they're doing it, too. It's the easiest way to get lifetime elite status on that airline. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if Brian thought of that. <laughs> yeah. 
What airplane do you think Brian would live in? Hmm. What, where, where can you picture? Probably a Polaris section of, uh, you know, yeah. a 777 or something like that. Yeah, 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 I like it. All right. Thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest this episode was Earl Lawrence. He's the chief compliance and quality officer at X-Wing. You can find him at xwing.com. And we really appreciate him coming on the show, especially uh, we had a little last-minute swizzle with uh, with guests. So uh, he kind of did that on short notice. We really appreciate that. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. If you want to go straight to the show notes for this episode, they're at airplanegeeks.com slash 736. Email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Rob, where do people find you or any closing thoughts? No closing thoughts. I think I have said enough for tonight, but uh, they'll find us. Uh, find us? Do you have a... Mo- uh, no, the dog's not here. I guess it's... Well, Jetwine is... They'll find... <laughs> they'll find me at uh, jetwine.com uh, within the uh, appropriate pages at Aviation Week. And uh, in just six months, it will be Air Venture time, I think. And it'll be here before you know it, guys. Mm. All right. Max Trescott, how about you? Well, funny that Rob brought up Air Venture because I was going to bring it up as well, too. Somebody twisted my arm and they want me to travel halfway across the country so that I can appear on their radio show at Air Venture. And of course, the only person that I would do that for is Rob Mark. So I have committed to uh, getting myself to Air Venture this year. So, Max, Max, I'm thinking mm. probably you should be on that radio show as well, too, and you should go to Air Venture this year. Well, in fact, Rob and I have already had that conversation. Uh-huh. <laughs> we, we did? Yes. Oh, right. Um, what did we That's say what I exactly? <laughs> oh, wait! Wait till David finds out. He's going to want a slot too. Yeah, uh, it would be fun. All we need to do is get um, Steve Fisher and Grant and David and and get uh, Dan. And uh, oh, it would be fun uh, because the, the table in the studio has, I think, about seven chairs, and it would all work out. <laughs> Sounds like fun. All right. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. And thanks for listening. I always wanted to say that. (laughs) You just did. Yay.